You're listening to In the Studio with Michael Card. The session is made possible by our friends with the Christian Standard Bible. Learn about this new translation and the many ways you can enjoy the CSB. Explore online when you visit csbible.com. Very happy to invite you to join us now here in the studio with Michael Card and Wayne Shepherd. And Michael, this is the first time we've had a chance to talk since you've been home from a month in Israel. That's right. I'm just now speaking in complete sentences again. So <laughs> okay, right. we've timed this really well. Well, I have a lot of questions, but I'm going to hold off until the second half of this conversation today to ask you about it. We'll okay. focus entirely the second half on uh, on debriefing you about the trip to Israel. You spent okay. uh, several weeks there uh, yeah. leading tours, and uh, I'm anxious to learn all about it. We'll do that in a few minutes here okay. in the second half. But here's a, here's a note from Gail. Uh, remember we had Odessa Settles on a rebroadcast recently from long ago yeah. in the studio. And by the way, I just saw Odessa a couple of months ago in Nashville. I had my picture taken. I, really? Not, not that I want another picture of me, but I wanted a picture of Odessa. Yeah, yeah. So I have a wonderful photo of uh, with Odessa Settles, and she's doing well these days. But Gail wrote to us after hearing Odessa here. She's such a sweet person. Yeah, she says, what a beautiful voice and message Odessa has. I also appreciated Scott and Mike's thoughts. As the scripture in 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, we are to be ambassadors for Christ. That means right where we are or wherever he leads us. Thank you all for another great podcast. Mm-hmm. Gail, thank you for that feedback. It's so encouraging when people take the time to write, and uh, especially when they, they they tell us specifically what they appreciated, so we can uh, try to give them more of that. Exactly. All right. Well, this is uh, from Dave. Dave was listening to our podcast at the end of January of 2023. Thank you all for such an uplifting podcast. I refer to you when I'm asked to lead or bring the word. Hmm. Just to say, two Guthrie books have been ordered, and John Ketchings and you connected with me. God bless you, Wayne, Joe, and the team. We need you. I pray you have a great time in Israel, Mike. Maybe one day when retired, I will join you. Hmm. Looking forward to seeing you in April. That's Dave. Wow. Uh, so, Actually, Dave is writing from the UK, and you're going to be touring the UK in April. So, Right. Maybe, uh, maybe our paths will cross. As I said in the second half today, we're going to get your reflections on the 2023 Israel tour. But here now, let's, let's turn to uh, some more teaching from the Cove. This has been such an excellent series. Last time, uh, you talked about the rabbinic mind of Jesus. Mm -hmm. This time, you're going to explore the question, who does Jesus think he is, Mm -hmm. Uh, which is kind of a provocative title. Do you want to set this up for what we're going to hear, and then we'll hear some music? Well, I just think it's it's an important question, and again, it's 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 asked in faith. It's not it's not a faithless who does Jesus think he is kind of arrogant question. It's in as we listen to him. Um, talking about himself, who who does he think he is? And and the easy answers are the I am sayings in John, of course. But but there are lots of other identities that are all wrapped into this perfect, uh, you know, incarnation. And uh, I I just think it's a good question. All right. Well, it's coming up in a few moments here as we turn to the teaching that Michael did at the Cove in Asheville, North Carolina. We'll hear it momentarily, but first. How about a song from Michael, Scribbling in the Sand? Uh, Dave mentioned uh, John Ketchings in his email a few moments ago. John joins you on this song, playing the cello, Scribbling in the Sand. Amid 
midst a mob of madmen, she stood frightened and alone. As hateful voices hissed at him that she should now be stoned. But in the air around him hung a vast and wordless love. Who knows what luminous lesson he was in the middle of? First he faced the fury of their self-righteous scorn But then he stooped and at once became the calm eye of the storm It was his wordless answer to their dark and cruel demand A lifetime in a moment as he scribbled in the sand it was silence, it was music, it was art, it was absurd. He stooped and shouted volumes without saying a single word. The same finger of the strong hand that had written Ten Commands. For now was simply scribbling in the sand. In the space of space and time, it scribbled in the sand. They came to hear and see as much as they could understand. Now bound by cords of kindness, they couldn't cast a single stone. And Jesus and the woman found that they were all alone. It was silence, it was music, it was art, it was absurd. He stooped and shouted volumes without saying a single word. The same finger of the strong hand that had written Ten Commands. For now was simply scribbling in the sand. That same finger come and trace my soul's sacred sand And make some unexpected space where I could understand That my own condemnation pierced and broke that gentle hand That scratched the words I'll never know written in the sand it was silence, it was music, it was art, it was absurd. He stooped and shouted volumes without saying a single word. The same finger of the strong hand that had written Ten Commands. For now was simply scribbling in the sand. The same finger of the strong hand that had written Ten Commands. For now was simply scribbling in the sand.
Now let's talk about who Jesus thinks he is. And again, I say that with the utmost respect. Uh, in John 8, 53, someone says, who do you think you are? And they're not being so respectful, but I'm saying that with the utmost respect because I want to understand his mind and I think his mind is revealed in scripture. So uh, let's look at that. And, and basically, as I can figure it, figure it out, he thinks of himself in sort of two categories. He thinks of himself in metaphors and he thinks of himself non-metaphorically, Okay. So the metaphors are all contained in the seven I am sayings in John. And let me just go over those uh, with you. We won't take the time uh, to read, read all of them. I'll just give you the list. Uh, the first one is in John 6.35. In contrast to the man in the wilderness, Jesus sees himself as the living bread. Because that's the first I am saying, I'm the living bread. The Jews murmur when he says this. And eventually some of his own disciples leave. We saw that earlier today because he talks about eating his flesh. So that's one of the ways when Jesus thinks of himself, he thinks of himself in terms of the manna, uh, the better than manna. And did we ever talk about the word manna? It's one of my favorite Hebrew words we did. It's a question mark and an exclamation point. Okay. And I'm so, uh, I don't know why Jesus is never called the manna because that really describes him. He's kind of a question mark and an exclamation point in a lot of ways. But uh, in his own mind, he's the living bread. You, you feed on him and you'll never be hungry again. That's how he thinks about himself, okay? The second one is uh, he, he thinks of himself in the metaphor of light, of the light of the world. And 8.12, it's kind of an isolated statement. It's right after the uh, woman taking in adultery. Um, and so we're not really sure of the context. It might have been the last day of tabernacles when there was a festival of illumination in the temple. He might have been referring to that, but it's not really clear. I really want it to be that way because that's a really cool idea, but the text doesn't really give me the, 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 the freedom to be dogmatic about it, but I think it's a really cool idea. But later in John 9, there's a clearer context when he heals the man born blind, which we saw was one of the messianic miracles. Um, and, and, and so, you know, he heals, he, he opens the eyes of a man born blind. He goes, I'm, I'm the light of the world. That's how he thinks about himself. He's the living bread. You feed on him. He's the light of the world. Your relationship with him, you'll never walk in darkness you know, if you're blind, he will, he will open blind eyes. And if you claim you can see, you're blind. You're going to be blind. He says that to the Pharisees. Um, right after that, verse 22, the Jews wonder if he's contemplating suicide. And that always puzzled me. That I think that's their way of saying he must be deranged or something. Okay? Uh, in the next chapter, in chapter 10, uh, Jesus says he... He says the same thing two ways. He says he's the gate for the sheep, and then he says he's the good shepherd. That's the same thing. And I showed you that picture of the sheepfold and the man laying down in the doorway. The shepherd actually becomes the gate. So it's it's a it's an image. One is ten nine. The gate for the sheep is John ten nine. The uh, the good shepherd is is ten eleven. So ten nine and ten eleven. He's saying the same thing twice. Uh, and when he says that. The Jews say he's raving mad. But that's one, but again, Jesus think it, thinking of who he is, he's the good shepherd who finds the lost sheep, who cares for the sheep, who gives his life for the sheep, right? 
So that's his self-understanding. He's the bread that we feed on. He's the light So in this dark world. And he's the shepherd who, uh, who knows his sheep by name. That's another part of his self-understanding. He knows his sheep by name. In John 11, so we're going right through John, uh, when he's talking to Martha, he says he's the resurrection and the life. And he actualizes that, obviously, when he raises Lazarus from the dead. In uh, John 14, he's speaking privately to his disciples after he washes their feet. And uh, Thomas asks him the question, Jesus says he's the way, and uh, he, he says he's going to, to a place they can't go. And, and uh, Thomas says, well, how can we know the way? And Jesus says, I'm the way. So in his own mind, he sees himself as the way, the truth, the life. And um, finally, um, in uh, chapter 15, he says he's the true vine. And this is another statement that's in isolation. It's really hard from the context to, 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 to determine exactly what he's referring to or if he's connecting it to something. The best we can guess is they're walking uh, to the garden. And the best guess we have is they walk past the temple and there's a big sculpture of a vine on the side of the temple. And a lot of scholars say, well, he must have been walking by and pointing and say, I'm the true vine. Um, and I think that's a good idea. But he repeatedly speaks of us remaining in the vine, the way a branch remains in the vine. So he sees himself as this this source that we are grafted into and we get our strength and we bear fruit and all these images flow from that. So those are the metaphors that Jesus thinks of himself in. He's the living bread that's better than the bread, that the manna that the, the Jews ate in the wilderness. He's the light of the world. He's the good shepherd. He's the resurrection and life. He's the way and he's the true vine, Okay. So these are some of the non-metaphorical ways that Jesus thinks of himself in. <laughs> that doesn't sound very, that sounds kind of awkward, doesn't it? Um, Jesus' favorite circumlocution for himself, Jesus' favorite roundabout way of referring to himself is son of man. That's a, that's a non-metaphor. He's the, he's the son of man. And what you need to know in, in Hebrew, ben adam just means person. Uh, but when you put the definite article in front of it, he's not a Ben-Adam, he's the Ben-Adam. He's the son of man. It speaks of his authority. He uses this term when he speaks of his authority in Mark 2. He, he uses son of man when he speaks of his suffering and his resurrection. Son of man is, is connected to all these ideas. In, in uh, 838, it's in reference to his, his return, his second coming. Uh, this is all connected to Son of Man. So in Jesus' mind, the Son of Man comes to serve. The Son of Man's Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man sows the seed. He came to suffer, and he came to re receive glory. So it's this non-metaphorical way he thinks of himself that's connected to all sorts of things. He's the Son of Man. And, and I paraphrase it. He's the, de the, de the definitive human person. I think that's an interesting way of paraphrasing Son of Man. He's the definitive human person. You wouldn't want to translate it that way in a Bible, though. That would be a mouthful, wouldn't it? <laughs> Secondly, uh, Jesus non-metaphorically thinks of himself of, as a judge because he says in, in uh, John 5 that God has given the, him the authority to judge, but guess what? 
He's a judge who doesn't judge anybody, right? He said, I didn't come to judge the world. I came to save the world. And uh, I wrote a song, I can't remember which song it is, but it talks about, you know, what does it feel like to look into your judge's face and realize that he's your savior? And that's Jubilee, right, that's Jubilee, thank you. So, um, I judge no one, that's John eight fifteen, And my note says, read 12, 44, so... Now, this is John 12, 44. Jesus cried out, the one who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. There it is. And the one who sees me sees him who sent me. I've, I've come as a light into the world, one of those metaphors, so that everyone who believes in me would not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and doesn't keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And, and the point is what the word judges you, your response to the word judges you. So Jesus doesn't have to, right? Um, I didn't come to judge the world. To say The one who rejects me and doesn't receive my sayings has this as his judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So I don't have to judge people. The, your response to the word is what, ju- is what judges you. For I've not spoken on my own, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a command to say everything I have said. Now, we're, I'm going to close with that idea. What that is an, an allusion to, and again, he's not quoting, he's thinking in the Hebrew Bible. That's an allusion to the prophet like, uh, like to Moses. Uh, God says, he promises, I'm going to send another prophet like Moses. And the the hallmark of that prophet is he's only going to say what I tell him to say. And Jesus says that about himself. I'm only saying what the Father tells me to say. And people will ask, uh, they ask John the Baptist, are you the prophet? And they mean the prophet like unto Moses. So that's one of the the, uh, non-metaphorical fulfillments. Jesus fulfills that image. Uh, But the Father himself who sent me has given me a command to say everything I have said. I know that his command is eternal life, so the things that I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Those are his last public words. The last thing he says in public is the things I've said are just what the Father told me to say. End of case. Then then he washes their feet. You know, the Last Supper happens, and from that point on, um, there there aren't public pronouncements. So he's the judge. He's the judge who's also our Savior. Um, the next one I have is he's the sent one. And as I said before, that's his principal identity in John. And it's used in every single chapter except one. Jesus is the sent one. It's, his, uh, it's a circumlocution for, well, his circumlocution for God is the one who sent me. And Jesus is the sent one. Okay. And it, interesting in chapter seven, 17, verse 18, we become the sent ones. Even as I was sent now I'm sending you. How cool is that? We take on that part of his identity. Um, that was uh, 17, chapter 17, John, uh, verse 18. My note says to read it. Here's 729. I'll start with 25, the identity of the Messiah. Some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Yet look, he's speaking publicly and they're saying nothing to him. Can it be true that the authorities know he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, nobody will know where he's from. That's a Jewish tradition 
there are three things that are unseen, stepping on a scorpion, discovering a godsend, and the coming of the Messiah. So the, uh, it's, it's not a biblical idea, it's a cultural idea. As he was teaching in the temple, Jesus cried out, you know me, and you know where I'm from, yet I've not come on my own, but the one who sent me is true. You don't know him, I know him, because I'm from him, and he sent me. So that in, in Jesus' mind, as he thinks about who he is, that's a very important idea for him, that he is, he's the sent one. Um, so they, this is John eleven forty one. So they removed the stone. Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this so that they may believe you sent me. And then finally, 17, chapter 17. Verse 17, 8. Now they know that everything you have given is from you uh, because I have given them the words you gave me. Prophet like it to Moses. They have received them and have known for certain that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. Okay, now here's 17, 18. Uh, here's 17. I'll start at 17. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world... Now, if you just read that verse in isolation and you haven't been listening to John, you don't know how important this is, but this is a big moment. He's, he's integrating us into his identity. So this is a big deal. But how often do you just read past stuff like this? Okay, but let's, let's, this is a big deal. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so that they also may be sanctified by the truth. So that's we become the sent ones. Uh, 2021, Jesus said to them again, peace to you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. That's uh, chapter 20 of John, uh, verse 21. That's part of the way he thinks about himself. He understands that his Father is the one who sent him. And if it didn't happen in every chapter, I wouldn't be making such a big deal out of it. But I suggest to you, if you want to understand how Jesus thinks about himself, who he thinks he is, a big part of that identity is he's the one that God sent. That's his authority, and he passes that authority on to us. We become the sent ones. I think that's pretty big. I mean, that's what apostle means. An apostle is someone who's sent, okay? Uh, another uh, part of non-metaphorical non identity of Jesus is he's the Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, this is Matthew 12, 1 through 8. At that time, Jesus passed through the grain fields on the Sabbath, um, his disciples, we, we read this, didn't, didn't we? His disciples were hungry and began to pick and eat some heads of grain. When, this, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, see, your disciples are doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Jesus said to them, haven't you read? On, and, and on it goes. Um, but he, he concludes this, his defense with, in verse eight, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Um, and this whole Ben-Adam business, there, I, I know an Israeli interpreter that's, that interprets son of man there as just person. So people are the Lord of the Sabbath. This is what he very dogmatically teaches, and I'm not so sure that's right. I think Jesus is referring to himself, but there it is. It's a slippery slope. Uh, but, but the point I make is, and I've already made this point, but I'm going to make it again. In, in Jesus' world, their dearest point of orthodoxy, and still in Judaism, I think you could make a case for this, the dearest point of orthodoxy is Sabbath. Sabbath is a big deal. 
Your whole life is shaped around Sabbath. I mean, they have two kitchens, you know, a Sabbath kitchen and a, a meat kitchen and a milk kitchen, and it's just all, you know, tied to this observance. And the point is, it's the cornerstone of Jewish, Jewish orthodoxy, and Jesus says, I'm Lord over that. The point is, his lordship is absolute. He's Lord over it. Lord means Lord. It doesn't mean he's Lord of, over one thing and not Lord over another thing, right? His lordship is absolute. Um, you don't get to pick and choose what he's not Lord of in your life, um, okay? And uh, so two, two more quickly, and I've, I've already touched on these. Um, he's the servant Lord in John 13, um, and I'm going to read to you Luke 22, um, but John 13, of course, is you know, one of those defining moments in the life of Jesus. Now, Luke cannot bring to tell you the story, but Luke uh, sets the scene for the, the uh, washing of the disciples' feet. Did you know that? It's in Luke 22, 24. Then a dispute also, uh, this is right after the Lord's Supper, which is when he washes their feet. So even though Luke doesn't tell you the story of the washing of their feet, because he's a slave and he can't bring himself to tell you that story, it's too humiliating. He knows it, but he's not going to tell it to you. This is Luke dealing with the story, okay? So then a dispute also arose among them about who should be considered the greatest, okay? The washing of the disciples' feet is Jesus' response to their argument about who's greatest. He's going to show them, this is what greatness is. I'm going to wash your feet, okay? That's what real greatness is. That's how his mind works. Real greatness is through humility, if you want to be rich, become poor. If you want to be mature, you become a child. His, he, he thinks in, in those kind of dualities. Anyway, so a dispute after the meal uh, arose among them about who should be considered the greatest. But he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them called themselves benefactors. It's not, like to, it's not, not to be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever's the greatest among you should become like the youngest, and whoever leads like the one who's serving. For who is greater, the one at the table or the one who is serving? That sounds to me like the guy who has just washed their feet. But Luke won't tell you that. Listen, isn't it the one at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. That's his identity. He's the servant of Lord. His lordship, the greatness of his lordship is connected to the fact that he's a servant. And nobody saw that coming in the Messiah. Nobody saw that coming. Okay, even though it's clear in the, in the Hebrew Bible. So he's the servant Lord. And I would go so far to say, if you don't know Jesus as your servant, you don't know him. If you don't know him as your servant, you don't know him. Because even, because you know, Peter says, you know, you ought not to be doing this. And Jesus, in essence, says, if you don't get this, you don't get me. This is who I am. So it's very important that we understand the servant. In Jesus' self-identity, he thinks of himself. Who does he think he is? He thinks he's the servant Lord. He's the servant Lord. And, uh, and, uh, and we are to be servants. And then finally, um, he's the prophet likened to Moses. And I'm not going to read it, but John uh, 12, 49, the things I speak are just what the Father told me to say. I read that anyway, okay? So in that, that's kind of a, a brief overview of how, who Jesus thinks he is.
fitting song from Michael that takes us to the halfway point in this podcast. We hope you'll stop by the Michael Card Music Facebook page and interact with other listeners about what you are learning, or reach us directly when you send your comments, song requests, or questions via email. Write to studio at michaelcard.com. There's much more teaching and insights like what you've heard when you check out Michael's books and music. Explore all that is waiting for you at michaelcard.com. Well, there's more music and conversation coming your way after this message in the studio with Michael Card. The Christian Standard Bible. Scholarly, accurate, readable, current. That's why we're excited to partner with CSB. I'm glad we're partnering with the CSB. I got to see firsthand the way godly scholars work together on this Bible translation. Now I get to use the CSB in my study and teaching. Visit csbible.com and explore the variety of options available to get this fresh translation into your hands. And when you order, receive your 40% discount on your CSB purchase at Lifeway when you use the promotion code CARD40. Just type CARD40 with no spaces for your 40% discount. The Christian Standard Bible, a great translation, a great selection, and a great discount. So many study Bibles and editions designed to make God's Word accessible in our busy lives. Choose a copy that fits your needs online at csbible.com. I hope you'll find one that will help you get serious about reading God's Word.
Absolutely beautiful. That was recorded in Israel. Let's get the back story on that recording, though. Mike, you uh, you were there. Tell me about this place and that song. Well, it's uh, it's called the the Church of Saint Anne. Saint Anne is Mary's mother. And you don't often think about who Mary's mother was, but her her name was Anne, and uh, it's right next to the pool of. Uh, Bethesda, where Jesus healed the man who'd been lame for 38 years. So there's this massive um, ruin um, uh, of where this enormous um, reservoir, I don't want to, I don't even call it a pool, it's a reservoir, it, it supplied water uh, for the temple, and it was, you know, 15, 20, 30 feet deep, and uh, the there were churches that were built over it. The Romans built a temple to Asclepius, the god of healing, over it. So there's always been healing associated with this this place. But but next to this massive hole in the ground is this church of Saint Anne, which has an echo of about ten seconds, and you you could hear that in the recording. Yeah, you have to stop at the end of each verse and let it die die out, or it just piles up on on itself. So. Uh, it's a it's a special place, and groups just basically stay in line. You know, one group will leave singing, and then another group will come in. Uh, when I was just there a couple of weeks ago, um, uh, there was a Korean group behind us, and boy, they were singing like crazy. Of course, it was Korean, so I didn't couldn't tell what it was they were singing. Yeah, but no translation necessary. I'm I'm assuming, huh? That's right. That's great. Well, that was recorded by our producer, Joe Carlson, who accompanied you on one of those trips to Israel. But you have just returned. When you go to a place like St. Anne's, I mean, you've been there multiple times. Does it still move you? Um, It just kind of depends on how things are going that that day. (laughs) Um, So in other words, you're human, huh? (laughs) Yeah. I'm not going to say, oh, yes, Wayne, every time I have a deeper... No, sometimes you're just tired and and, uh, you're, you're... you know, one of the things we're doing because that's in the city is um, there are generally thirty of us in a group, and so I'm walking behind the group to make sure nobody just sort of wanders off to buy a souvenir or something, which happens sometimes. This last trip, uh, it's it's probably going to be my last time to go, and um, that made every place that we we went uh kind of more special because i was mm-hmm. i would tell myself well you're not going back so kind of soak up and and um in the corner of this church is a statue life-size statue of saint anne and this little girl standing next to her which of course is mary and um i think for the first time you know this background of Wow, Mary had a mother and a father, and you know, and she she grew up in this little village, uh, you know, Nazareth, and uh, that sort of thing. So, I don't know. I think uh, uh, I think it was a meaningful time. It's always wonderful to sing in that church. Yeah, you led multiple groups there over the course of several weeks, and I, I know yeah. it had to be a tiring experience for you. But I know how grateful they are to have had that experience with you, Mike. And um, yeah. any other memorable moments of the trip you want to talk about? Going uh, for the first time, uh, coming over the the hill and seeing uh, the Sea of Galilee, um, and and for the first time we went we went to a place that I've been to multiple times. Uh, it's the Church of the Beatitudes, uh, but I didn't realize because there there are there are a bunch of trees and bushes that they had cleared away that had blocked the view. Mm-hmm. But from the parking lot, 
there is this view of Capernaum sitting there on uh, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and I'd never seen Capernaum from that perspective before. And one of the most memorable uh, that was one of the most memorable experiences of this this uh, this last trip, uh, just overviewing. Uh, of course, it's tiny. I mean, it's just a tiny little little um, spot on the lake uh, where they've done some excavations, and there's a couple of churches there. But to see it in perspective of the huge mountains in the background and and the the lake itself, um, I, I think it, it gave me a. Um, well, I have Capernaum in my head now in a way that mm-hmm. I didn't have it in my head before. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you are responsible for leading these groups. Uh, there were several of them, and as you said, some 30 people, which is, is a fairly small group for for Israel tours these days. It Many is. Many times there are multiple buses and all that. We've talked about that before, how nice it is to have a, a smaller group. But you know, you've got responsibility yeah. as a leader, but it, it has to impact you spiritually at the same time. I mean— you can't be there, right, without it having that kind of an impact on you. No, I no, I, I I think you're right, and and also I think you also kind of alluded to the fact that you're impacted in in different ways. Um, the, again, these are places that I've been to multiple times, and uh, sometimes you just assume, oh well, we're going to go back to Capernaum again. We need to see Peter's house. I need to show them the the uh there's uh, in in the in the floor of the little synagogue not little synagogue in the floor of the big synagogue there there are game boards that children scratched in the floor in the wow. like fourth third or fourth century which i always take people to cuz i think that's a neat little detail but uh so so yeah. in one case in one sense you're saying well yeah okay i'm going to go see these things that are my favorites about this particular location but in another sense like seeing capernaum up uh from the from the hill up on the hillside, looking down on it and getting that different perspective, and that was that was like I said, that was uh, that was life changing. I have Capernaum in in my mind in a different way now. And the main thing, though, after, especially after so many trips, is is being there to see other people experience it. Um, my wife's best friend Stevie went with us uh, on our first trip this this uh, this last uh, go round. And seeing her experience these things, and uh, so often bursting into tears, and oh. um, yeah, that wow. that's always special too. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask about. I'm glad you brought that up because I did want to ask you. I assume there were several first timers, and it's it's yeah. got to be special to 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 read their reaction and and to yeah. just witness that, huh? Yeah, and it's especially the the approach that we took on these tours was always uh, we're not here to collect chill bumps. We're not chill bump collectors. So the point is not, wow, you know, this is the steps that Jesus actually walked. Because you hear some tours doing that, and it just feel like you're you're kind of winding people up. I, I think it's an, it's enough to go to the site and then give people time. I, I say, let the site speak to you. We'll we'll do our homework the night before. We'd have meetings in the hotel, and we'd kind of teach about what, what we're going to do the next day. And so they would have the background in their heads, and then we'd have a guide who would also give some background. But then let people just walk around Capernaum or walk around one of these little villages that's a, you know, you know, from the time of Jesus, and let let the let yeah. the site speak to you. I love the fact that you allow time for things to soak in and not rush off to the next thing to be seen and experienced. That's that's uh, that's a great way to go about it. Yes. Uh, we're going to hear another song recorded in Israel. Uh, let's set this up. You you, as I understand, uh, take people 
into a wilderness setting and talk yes. about that. And then uh, immediately after one of those experiences is when you recorded this song there on the location. So uh, talk to me about that wilderness experience. Right. One of the points I like to make about uh, Scripture is uh, so often there are stories that are separated by a chapter division that are really one story. And one of the best examples is the baptism of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. We, we treat that as two separate stories. That's really one story. Because what happens is Jesus is baptized, and we go to the site, the traditional site where he was baptized. Um, God declares, uh, God's voice declares that Jesus is his son. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, God, God says when Jesus is baptized. The, um, the, the immediate uh, the, the next thing that happens, and when you're on site, you can see this. Basically, Jesus walks across the street, <laughs> and the wilderness is right there. I mean, you can hit it. You can hit it with a bow and arrow from where where you, you know, from the baptism <laughs> site. And so he walks into the wilderness, and what happens? Satan challenges that sonship. He says, "If you're the son of God, do this. If you're the son of God, do this." And Jesus. Uh, shows his dependence on the Word of God and rebukes Satan, and you know you, you know the story. But that's one of those examples of two stories that get broken up in our teaching and preaching that are really one story, and you can't mm-hmm. understand one without the other. Mm-hmm. Well, the year that this song was recorded on location, you had just been in the wilderness, and then you moved to Lazarus' tomb, the location where this song was mm-hmm. sung. So let's listen in to what Jill recorded on that particular trip. So this is just to catch up with where we've been. In the wilderness, in the wilderness, he calls his sons and daughters to the wilderness, but he gives grace sufficient to survive and test, and that's the painful purpose of the of our wanting where the darkness seems so deep we search for a beginning for an exodus to home and find that those who follow him must often walk alone in the wilderness in the wilderness he calls his sons and daughters Purpose of the wilderness. 
Recorded in 2020 at the tomb of Lazarus uh, during one of these Michael Card tours. Michael just back from Israel, and we're talking about the most recent trip in 2023. Uh, Michael, you've spent much of the last year or more studying the life of Jesus and learning all the details that you can possibly learn about uh, our Lord. Um, something new come to you during this trip? Uh, let me think. Um, it's hard to sum up 30 days <laughs> of experience. <laughs> um, I understand that. There, were, I, I did have one moment. We we go to a village uh, called Katrain, which is a a village from a, a little bit later. It's called the Talmudic period, um, like second century. But but really, it looks it looks you know it looks like the uh, the village that Jesus would have known. The uh, it's in mm. it's in Galilee. The 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 buildings are all made out of black basalt. I, I like to tell people. When he's in Galilee, Jesus really lives in a black basalt world. All the buildings are are made out of this black black basalt, and so that's what this town is made out of. And what what was happening? Uh, the the tour guide took our group into this one of the buildings, and he was talking about the backgrounds and all that stuff. And there's basically there was no room for me because I always stay in the back, herding people in. So I was I was by myself, and um, next to this. Uh, next to this building that they were in, se- second century building that they were in, uh, was an alleyway, and I was just I just walked up this alleyway, and then all of a sudden, in my imagination, I asked myself the question: What would it be like to be walking down this alley and see Jesus coming the other way, just as a normal, normal oh, part man. of the day? Wow! You know, you know, here's yeah. uh, again, not not Jesus in glory, and you know, fall down and worship him, but. I live in the same village as Jesus, and here's this common sort of alleyway between these two houses, and here he comes walking the other way. And I even took time on my phone. I took a little video of my phone of walking down this alleyway, and I, mm. I think that was that was a new idea for me in terms of uh, the the humanity of Jesus. I I think the disciples, the problem they have, they they have no problem. Uh, accepting his humanity because he's there, he's sleepy, he's eating, he's doing all these things, right? Sure. What they have trouble grasping is the divinity of Jesus. Well, we have, I think, the opposite problem. I mean, I don't think most of us who are followers of Jesus, we, we accept that he's the Son of God, and and we, we have you know the transfiguration and the ascension and all these glorious things in our head. We know those things all happen. I think what we struggle with is the is the humanity. And so that kind of a moment for me was as common as it was. Again, I'm walking up an empty alley, and I imagine him, you know, on a common everyday, you know, uh, occurrence. I imagine him walking the other way and just passing him in the alley. Uh, and as mundane as that sounds, it was a it was a it was a big moment for me. It's actually rich to hear you talk about it in those terms. Mm-hmm. I, I love that. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I I don't know if you're ever gonna if it's ever gonna find its way into one of your songs or your books, but it's no. it, it had to be a moment. It really did. It, it it was, and and the and and mundane is the is the kind of the key word. It was just this ordinary, muddy alleyway between two buildings, but it was an ancient alleyway, and they were basalt buildings, and it was it was just kind of a the perfect setting. So, um. Uh, yeah, that was that was a that was one of the moments that that I'll I think I'll, I'll I'll always remember from this trip. Well, for those who don't know, of course, uh, on the tour you do spend a lot of time teaching, and mm-hmm. and and um, 
you know, it's just, it just has to be a very, I've never been able to be with you on one of those trips. Uh-huh. Our, our producer Joe has and has shared some of this with me. But And I've talked with people who have been on the trip and hope to talk to more, but it just has to be so uh, mm-hmm. wonderful to be in that place and to be taught about yeah. the life of Jesus in those places where Jesus, as you just said, walked as a human. Yeah. I, yeah, again, I think as long as you aren't trying to push people's buttons with it, you're not chill bump collecting. What I tell people is, okay, now now you have the Sea of Galilee in your head, right? We take a boat ride across the northern tip of the lake. Now you've got that in your head. When the Bible says Jesus got in a boat and went to the other side of the lake, okay, I've got that. You've walked around Capernaum. You have a, a sort of a general idea of where Capernaum is and, and how big it was, or, or uh, it's hard with... Bethlehem or Nazareth. Uh, I'll tell you one other interesting moment that we did have in Nazareth. Uh, we go to the place where um, called the precipice, where they were going to throw Jesus off the cliff uh, after he spoke mm-hmm. in the synagogue. And we look back at the city. Of course, Nazareth is this huge, huge town now. And in the middle of the city is uh, the the Church of uh, uh, Church of the Annunciation, where. The angel, you know, told Mary that she was going to have Jesus. Right across the street from that was the tomb of, is the tomb of Joseph, Jesus' foster father, as it were. But um, anyway, we we looked up on the hillside, and our guide said, you know, you see the, the the church up there on the hillside, this tiny little speck. He said that church is basically as big as the whole village of Nazareth was, and uh, it was you know maybe two two football fields, you know, not very big at all. And um, that that was kind of an interesting moment because I could I could hardly perceive how small that was on the hillside, um, in in view of this humongous city. It's like you're in New York City and somebody points out you know um, a football field and says, "Okay, this is what New York City used to be." Uh, he yeah, pointed right. out, uh, uh, yeah, just how tiny Nazareth actually was, and and so sometimes you can go to these places like Capernaum and get a good idea of what it was like. But in Nazareth, unfortunately, uh, you can't do that. It's just too big. Mm-hmm. That's good. Perspective is everything, isn't mm-hmm. it? Well, before yeah. we leave, yeah. we're going to hear one more song that was recorded in the land of Israel. Uh, in my notes, it says it was recorded at Taipei. Mm-hmm. Is that how it's pronounced? Uh-huh. What What is Taipei? Taipei is um, it's a little town. It's in the hill country of Ephraim. Jesus retreats there at one point. And uh, we go there because there's a, 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 a house that's been preserved there. Again, it's, it's, it's somewhat later than the time of Jesus, but it's set up the way a house would have been in Jesus' time. And um, one of the first things you have to sort out is uh, the whole fallacy of there was no room for them in the inn, okay? Uh, there in is not the proper translation of that word. Uh, Cataluma is the Greek word, and it, it means guest room. There was no room for them at the guest room because um, you, you don't stay in, as a Jewish person, you don't stay in inns, you stay in Jewish homes. And mm-hmm. so when they, they get to Bethlehem, uh, there's no room for them. And so they have to stay um, where, the, where there's a manger. And when you see this house in Taipei, underneath the house is a cave, and there, that's where the animals would have stayed. And so we go to Taipei to, to uh, once again, you have it in your head. You, now you know, here's this you know, ancient stone building, and in the back is the Cataluma, the, the guest room that was full. 
And so underneath the house, uh, but it, it's all one big open space, but underneath the floor of the Cataluma is this cave where the animals would stay. There's, there's a stone manger there. Jesus probably slept in a stone manger or an indentation in the ground. It probably wasn't the wooden manger that we have in our in our uh, nativity scenes. But we go to Taipei so that you can get that image in, in, in your head. And it's, it's a powerful image. Yeah, indeed. Well, this is where this song was recorded. And we'll end with this. Mm-hmm. It's, of course, the song that so many of us just love. Great is thy faithfulness. Thank you, Michael. this time together has helped you make a deep connection with the Lord, and we hope you'll let us know how God used this session in your life. Please feel free to post a comment on the Michael Card Music Facebook page. Write via email in the studio at michaelcard.com. Learn about Michael's books and music at michaelcard.com. You can write a review on Apple Podcasts or share the link with what you've discovered on your favorite social media platform. We're excited about the partnership with our sponsors of the Christian Standard Bible. Visit csbible.com. The Bible is the foundation of all we do in this podcast, and we're happy to point you to the many ways you can read and study with this fresh translation in your hands. Explore all that's available for you and use the 40% discount on CSB purchases at Lifeway. When you order, use the promotion code CARD40, typed with all caps and no spaces, to receive your 40% discount on CSB purchases through Lifeway. Choose a copy that fits your needs online at csbible.com. And join us again next week for another podcast edition. 
Now for Ron Davis, Susan Sermon, Lance Mansfield, and our producer Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepard. Thanks for sitting in on this session in the studio with Michael Card.